It's certainly a pleasure to be with you all this morning and lifting up the praises to our one and only Savior, Jesus, once again. Uh, last week coming in, I walked on the stage and uh, Ryan was here and Ryan looked at me and said something about my wet hair. And then I got to thinking, and I was like, my hair shouldn't be wet at this point. It should be dry. It's always dry by the time I get to church. And then I started questioning myself, and then I realized that last Sunday morning when I took a shower, I totally neglected to wash my hair. So I managed to get in the shower. I did wash my body, um, but managed to skip washing my hair altogether and there was a time in my life when if I walked in somewhere with, you know, the, I would have been thoroughly embarrassed. It would have, it would have hurt my pride. It kind of does right now, but I think as a pastor, I've just come to own those things better. But uh, there was a time when I would have been just hurt to the core because my pride is so big, because my ego is so big. In our text that we studied last week, our text that we're studying this week, we come back to the passage and see David talking about his own pride, his own arrogance, and the unwillingness that he has to recognize God's provision in all things. It's a problem that we all recognize quickly. We're in Psalm 30. Psalm 30, what we see here in Psalm 30 is a celebration of God's faithfulness to David, and David invites us in to celebrate God's faithfulness with him. It is, in some sense, a psalm of lament, but it's also a psalm of contrast, because David is contrasting several different things, the the depths of how low he got in his sickness, in his illness, in his sin, and then talks about God's rescue from that. God's grace amid that, God's mercy toward him. And as you remember, we last week discussed the fact that we're, we're getting a good opportunity to practice this kind of celebration of God's faithfulness in our society right now. The theme we said last week, our suffering pales in comparison to God's lasting Comforts. Our suffering pales in comparison to God's lasting comforts. And let's go through the psalm all the way through once more, and then we'll finish what we started last week. Psalm 30, hear the word of the Lord. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. 
And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's pray. Father, once again, we open your word in hopes of seeing your son clearly. Help us to know him, to know his humility, to know his mercy, to celebrate these things today, Father, as we hear from you. Be glorified in what is said and sung and prayed here today. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What we have is uh, snapshots or snippets here, uh, all sort of surrounding what's likely the same situation in Psalm 30. And David gives us, in the midst of this situation, four contrasts. And so to remind you, first off, there was aid over ailment, aid over ailment. So God's rescue, God's salvation overpowers the grip of death. He was in the midst of the sickness. He didn't want to die, and it wasn't because of his fear of death. We covered that. But it was because he wanted to continue in service to God on this earth. But we looked at this and learned about the fear of death that plagues so many of us. Thank you. Aid over ailment. That was the first one. We'll continue. I won't recap too much. Secondly, we talked about favor over fury. Another contrast where the Lord's favor outweighs his short-lived anger. We talked about how sin angers God. We talked about the forgiveness that God brings through his son and how that forgiveness and favor lasts. And then thirdly, we get to verses 6 and 7, and that is relationship over riches. Relationship over riches. He says, as for me, I said in my prosperity, read a security. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. Relationship over riches. The point here, this point versus the other ones is slightly different because we don't like to look at riches and success and prosperity as something that is negative. You know, it's always set before us as a goal. You're taught from early on, you want to be successful, you want to be rich, you want to have things, you want to enjoy a lot. You know, parents, I want, I want better for my kids, those kind of things. The American dream, all of it is wrapped around this notion of security, of riches, of success. You know how you're like just a little bit offended in your prosperity when somebody says money is the root of all evil? You say, no, no, that's not what it says. You say, it's the love of money. There's nothing inherently wrong with money. And then we begin to justify our love and idolatry of success and 
riches. But there's a process here in these couple of verses. It may not be seen clearly at first glance. But look, he starts off very cocky. Cockiness. We may say here, I got all C's for you right here. You know, success has a way of intoxicating people with pride, leading them to forget that God is the source of all they have. So I would ask you to call to mind a passage of scripture that deals with the danger of riches or the condition of successful people. If I asked you that, you could probably reply pretty quickly. The scriptures are filled with cautionary examples of what success and affluence does to the spiritual life. The way it divides your service to God, you can't serve two masters. The way it chokes the word out through deceit, it corrupts the soil. The way it blinds us from spiritual needs, as we just heard from 2 Corinthians 4. Think about the rich young ruler. We see these things, we know these things, and God's word warns us about these things. He says, do not fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, 1 Timothy 6, 17. He who trusts in riches will fall, Proverbs eleven twenty eight. Do not set your heart upon riches, Psalm 62, 10. A rich man is wise in his own eyes, Proverbs 28, 11. James 5, 5, a luxurious earthly life fattens the heart in the day of slaughter. We could keep going and going and going about how God warns us of the problems that come along with riches, that come along with success. And Plummer here says, the carnal mind naturally and easily perverts even a little prosperity to the engendering of pride and self-sufficiency, forgetfulness of God, and practical atheism. David certainly was here. Thinking anything that he wanted was his. I shall not be moved. You know, at times, he had that notion, like here, of invincibility, which was likely the error to which he refers to his near-death illness. Yet this undoubtedly happened on numerous occasions in the life of David. If you know David, beyond the census that he took, as we discussed last time in 2 Samuel 24, the census that he took against the Lord's will, that's just one of several recorded occasions where David took another drink of his own arrogance. Aside from placing his hope and confidence in the numbers of his armies, he sought pleasure through the abuse of his power. You know this. In response to that, he attempted to sweep that under the rug. And then in his pride, when that didn't work, he orchestrated a murder to cover his sin. David is showing us ourselves in this psalm, I shall not be moved. Do you see you when you read this verse? I bet if you look closely, you'll see your name sort of in a footnote right there. 
And if it's not, I would tell you to write it in. This is me. I know I see my name. Don't look at verses like this or hear about David's story and murder and adultery. Don't hear that stuff and think, well, I never did those things. I didn't do those bad things. I never committed adultery. I never murdered someone. I'm not even rich. Well, I would just say, you ever lust after another? Jesus says, you are an adulterer. You ever hate someone? Jesus says you are a murderer. You ever boast about your success or how you worked hard for everything you got? You're pridefully rich. But this happens to us, especially in our seasons of success or moments of recognition We put together the pieces of the puzzle that got us to the heights of life. And conveniently, the Lord's involvement barely gets in the picture, if even at all. And so, one commentator says, we are sadly wrong when we pervert God's blessings to the encouragement of carnal security. There are a lot of ways that we can do this. I won't begin to list these things in an attempt to cover them, hoping that the Holy Spirit will make your application. He says here, I will never be shaken. I will never be shaken. You consider the securities that you put your hope in? It's interesting to note like how in our society... As rich as we are as a society, we are the society that is most burdened about tomorrow. We're most worried about if we're going to make enough money to pay our bills, if we're going to have enough food. You go anywhere else in the world, almost, and those people have a fraction of what we have, and they don't even really care. See, we have likewise taken the drink of our own pride, our own arrogance, because we put our hopes in things that do not last. And so you work really, really hard to make enough money, or you work really, really hard to make a name for yourself, or you work really, really hard to get out of the situation that you were in when you were a kid, or whatever. And then you think, man, I did well for myself. I shall not be moved. Self-confidence is a serious threat to God-confidence. Boyce says here, as a people, we can think, or excuse me, we think we can prosper by our hustle. As a church, we think we can advance the kingdom by our clever schemes, our ingenuity. As a nation, we think we're unshakable because of our economy or military. All the while, God has it all in the palm of his hand, and he laughs at us. He laughs at our arrogance, our so-called self-confidence. 
But thankfully, he brings a correction. There is cockiness, and then there is, secondly, a correction. David's success, as we see, led him to heinous sin. But God's discipline led him to a restored relationship with God. So we say relationship over riches. God hid his face from David. You remember with his illegitimate son, God judged David in the baby's death. With the murder of his commander, God called David out. And then with this deathly illness he mentions in this passage, God hid his face. This is the opposite of blessing. This is evidence of curse. This is broken relationship with God. And you realize in the moments of your sin and your rebellion and your pride and your arrogance, no amount of riches... No amount of success or accomplishments or recognition can make up for a broken relationship with the Lord. You may ride high on these things for a season, but there is a hard fall coming. And if you know God, he will bring this kind of correction to you. There will be a time when you come to a confession. But I would say to the unbeliever, it's a terrifying thing to think about the fact that all the success that you enjoy, all the things that you have amassed in this world, may be the evidence of God's condemnation that is upon you, lest you repent. Just like the rich young ruler, you hear the good news, you think, hey, that's a neat story, and then you walk away continuing in your dissatisfaction with the things of the world. Don't believe the lie of your self-made success. David believed that lie, and he experienced God's correction. And then it turned into a confession. I'm reading that verse kind of backwards here. So he says, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. But this verse is looking back in hindsight. And so you see the process more clearly as his cockiness, his correction, and then his confession. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. So David's saying here, I didn't realize that in those moments of my pride and arrogance, you were actually the one who brought that success, Lord. You actually established my kingdom. You made the mountain strong, which is a metaphor. One writer paraphrases it. He says, I have learned by painful experience that the power of my kingdom had its roots in thy favor. In a different case, the Apostle Paul would say it this way. By the grace of God, I am what I am. You know Paul. He had reached the pinnacle of education and success and recognition and status. And there was nobody that was more righteous than Paul in human terms. 
He thought it was all for God. And then when he met Christ, none of those things amounted to anything. He even said, they are rubbish next to knowing Jesus Christ. David, likewise, thankfully, as a believer, came to this realization very quickly and confessed, it's your favor, O Lord, that has made me strong, that has made my mountain strong. God sought to restore David to a relationship with him. Through this correction and through this confession, he again is restored, brought up out of the pit, verse 1. And then fourthly, a fourth contrast, and this is our last contrast, gladness over grief. Gladness over grief, verses 8 through 12. Let's read it again. To you, O Lord, I cry. To the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. David's words here in the following verses really summarize the interaction that he had with the Lord throughout this whole psalm. His confession of God's gracious discipline toward him and the accompanying grief led him to plead for God's mercy. And God responded. There's a plea here. A plea filled with grief. As we covered last week, David was not motivated by fear of death. In fact, he offered personally to take the judgment of death in order that the people may not endure the judgment when he did take that census against the Lord's will. He would rather have died in that moment and let the people avoid God's judgment. So it wasn't the fear of death. Rather, he was moved by his faith in God. So David knew that there was work to be done, that the kingdom had to be established, that there was an heir that was going to take his place, but it took a cry of grief to get him ready for God's response. It took a cry to get him to a place of willing service and transformation. So I would ask you, why Would God rescue you from your circumstances when you're not ready to be used by him? My wife has informed me of the way you get yeast ready for baking. And uh, if you know her, you know she's learned well how to bake bread. But there's a process of proofing the yeast that I learned about. And if you don't wait the proper amount of time for that, for that yeast to be ready, then your bread is not going to rise. It's not going to be ready to cook, and it's not going to be ready to eat, ultimately. The thing is that David was in this season of grief, short or long, for however long God wanted to do it. He was waiting for that time to be ready, to be used by God, to be restored. 
And thankfully, he, res- he responded quickly. He was restored quickly. But you may think about the circumstances you're in. You may think about your life. You may think about a long season, a short season, a season in the past. You may think about this, and I would ask you, are you really ready to come out of your season of that struggle? Are you really ready to come out of the season of grief and despair? Are you beginning to experience the transformative power of God in the midst of that grief yet? See, we often look at our circumstances and think, well, the point is that God would just save me from this. That's not always the only point. We look at our struggles and think that the end is what is supposed to be enjoyed. But as a believer, I'm convinced we ought to see the struggle itself as God's shaping work, his refining fire. And while we are waiting, while we are learning to repent, while we are in the midst of maybe lamenting and grieving, God is still doing wondrous work in our hearts. So David's right there, and he goes into these questions, these rhetorical questions. What profit is there if I die? Would the dust praise you and tell of your faithfulness? That's actually like the dust that his body would turn into is what what is in mind here. Would this sing your praises? These questions right here, these rhetorical questions really show how David is coming to that place where he is willing to be used by God. He's coming to that place where he's recommitting to the work of God. And that's something that is born out of that deep grief. Can you see your grief in that kind of way? Can you learn to appreciate the work God has for you, the ministry he has set before you so that you could embrace this kind of grief, this kind of suffering, It's kind of lamenting as a tool that God is using. It's a plea filled with grief, and then there's praise filled with gladness. Praise filled with gladness, you see in verses 11 and 12. I want to give you a few more contrasts just within this this section alone, these couple of verses. First off, praise and silence. Notice here, For David, the only thing that would silence him from singing the praises of God is death. For us, what does it take? It takes another church member to make us mad and we stop singing. All it takes is another bill in the mail and we stop singing. All it takes is another bout with sickness and we stop singing. In spite of all the blessings God has given us, Some of us are strangely silent about the goodness and grace of God. We stop singing. There's a hymn that we often sing by Charles Wesley. The, The words are, the first line, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Boyce says about this hymn, he says, 
For what would be the advantage of possessing a thousand tongues to sing God's praise when the one tongue we do have is so silent? He says, if we are not speaking God's praise, if we are not singing God's praise, it's because our hearts are not full of him. David had been low, but the mercy of God drew him up. And in verse 12, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. There's praise and silence. Then there's mourning and dancing. I know some of you through and through Baptists just got uncomfortable. Dancing, I don't know about this. It was Old Testament, you know. They, don't, they do things different, right? No. Dancing. I would ask you, when's the last time that you were so full of the joy of the Lord that you just began to dance? Whatever that looked like. Have you been so overtaken by God's goodness that it would drive you to, to act crazy like that? To dance, to enjoy it. David's tears led him to a jig according to the mercies of God. Dancing in scripture always expresses the heights of joy and here it's intended to overtake the grief formerly felt. You have turned my mourning into dancing. That contrast. We see another contrast, sackcloth and gladness. Sackcloth and gladness. Gladness here became his clothing by the mercies of God. You all know that look that a parent has when their child does well at something? There's this beaming thing about them. They're glowing with gladness. You know how that gladness spills over onto the child and that child is affirmed and likewise filled with gladness? Well, what we learn right here and throughout the scriptures, God delights in the repentance and praise of his people. It makes him glad. And he shares his gladness with us. Gladness replaces the clothing of grief. You've heard of sackcloth before in scripture. Sackcloth is a it's the clothes of grieving. It's the raiment of the repentant. You know, church, we have heard the phrase Sunday best, right? And the sort of the, the notion that when you go to church, you dress up nice, right? Actually, I think it is more often the case that we need to set aside our Sunday best and, in fact, put on our Sunday worst. Because we need long seasons of repentance. So put on sackcloth if need be. Mourn over sin and its effects and then repent and be filled with this gladness. Plummer says here, It is not wicked to be very sad to mourn, 
and to put on sackcloth. It is not sinful to shed tears and heave sighs. He says, Jesus wept. His soul was sorrowful even unto death. Do you see that in this psalm, we have David who descends into maybe some of the lowest pits of what a human can experience. But all of this is to show us that he is only rescued from that pit. He only enjoys the mercies of God because there was another who went further into that pit. In fact, he went to the full depths of that pit. He went to the depths of death and drank the dregs of God's wrath so that our seasons of grief would be light and momentary. Jesus' work has made us glad. He went to the deepest depths of suffering, and now we can enjoy the depths of God's mercy. We can enjoy the depths of eternal joy. We can rest in that eternal life. You see, David understood what it meant to cry out to God for mercy because he knew the God of mercy. And a commentator says here, how great was the change that was produced as in a moment by the mercy of God. He interposed his love and gladness followed. I would tell you today that that is what Jesus does when somebody comes to him in faith. When we come to him knowing that our situation is dire, we come to him knowing our sin has condemned us, we come to him seeking his mercy as the only one who can give it, and he gives it based on faith in him. As we conclude, once more, Plummer says, if we obtain the help of God, we need no other aid. He is sufficient. He alone is all sufficient. Maybe if you are an unbeliever and you need the mercy of God upon your life, you need the assurance of eternal life, You need to know the God who made you, the God who sent Jesus to die for your salvation. Repent and believe the gospel today, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. But believer, if you're in the midst of grief or suffering, if you're in the midst of unrepentant sin, then why make it last longer than it needs to? Repent of sin and be restored. Experience the gladness of God. Maybe it's a season that's out of your control. Maybe it's suffering that it seems to last. It doesn't seem to change. It doesn't seem to go anywhere. I would tell you that the only hope you have of making it through and looking more like Jesus is to give your heart to God in lament, in grief, in prayer, and in praise. He will do exactly in his time what he did for David. He will turn your morning, morning into dancing. 
He will turn your silence into praise. Let's pray.